بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الله صلى الله عليه وسلم there's one discussion left in the previous ayah where you have prisoners of war i mentioned we are allowed to ransom them we're allowed to free them and if there's a danger that these prisoners will cause more havoc and chaos than the Khalifa is also allowed to execute them at his discretion. But that rarely happens. The fourth thing that is allowed, emphasis being on the word allowed, is that you can enslave them. And that is where obviously most of the discussions about Islam are centered on the institution of slavery in Islam and so on. So obviously it's a huge, huge subject. Many books have been written on this and uh, we should take everything with a pinch of salt and, and so on. Anyway, since now we do have a convention in Islamic law called Ijma'ah, the consensus of the ulama. So if today, through the consensus of the ulama, they suspend the institution of slavery, we will be in favor of it. We will not go against it. That's number one. Number two, understanding the context during the time of the Prophet and the subsequent generations, subsequent Muslim rulers, okay, there are some key differences in the way the American slavery and the other kind of colonialists, what their standard of slavery was, and perhaps it is, and our standards. As I said, it is allowed, it is mubah, number one. Number two, there are so many forms of ibadah that either impose freeing slaves or recommend freeing slaves. So institutional slavery, as it is allowed, it is recommended that slaves are freed. There's a whole list of how many slaves the Sahaba freed. 
that will show you the culture amongst the Sahaba as to why they didn't want to keep slaves for the sake of keeping slaves. So Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, who a very wealthy Sahabi, he freed 30,000 slaves himself, just by himself. He's a rich man, alhamdulillah, and he freed them. That's now the what you call it, cultural underpinnings and the incentives for freeing slaves. And you'll see that in the Quran. Fakkur Akhaba, very early on in Mecca, freeing slaves is part of a civilizational code. If you want a good society, a good city, Hadal Balad. Uh, then you must be willing to free the slaves. Slavery was very common in those days, very rampant. It was uh, institutionalized. It was a norm. Uh, so Islam came and said, although it's the norm, we won't abolish it uh, just yet. What we'll do is that we'll impose upon the Muslims certain standards of keeping slaves. One is that you feed them what you eat and you clothe them what you clothe, what you wear yourselves. There seems to be some equality there. <laughs> right? So slaves in the Muslim community, they were not downtrodden. They weren't necessarily despised. And if you house your slave with you, you're not ghettoizing them. In Zan. They won't get away. There wasn't a kind of out-of-the-town ghetto where the slaves lived. They lived with their masters. So they had a decent standard of living. You understand? They were eating well. The most important thing about our slavery is that we have a, in fiqh a whole chapter on, on wala. wala. Wala is wilaya of the slave after he is freed. So the Prophet said, He made sure that they were not left uh, to roam around on the earth uh, without any sense of protection. So the right to protect a free slave is for the one who frees him. So now he is annexed onto his wilaya, onto his authority into his family because he freed him. He belongs now, not legally, but he belongs culturally and in a civilization. So if somebody is now freeing 30,000 slaves, he is the protector of all of those slaves. Although he's not there anymore legally, he's been protected. What does that do? It removes xenophobia. Yeah? You dare touch my freed slave. He's under my protection, protect, protection, he's under my jurisdiction. And that's how they thrived, all the slaves thrived. And the Muslim market used the skill sets of all the slaves. Whatever skill set they brought to the table, the master would say, you do this for me over a number of years and I'll free you. And so on. Right? You can marry your slave uh, girl. Um, and once that happens, the child is free. Basically, um, so the slaves enjoyed a certain amount of comfort that is alien to any other civilization. So there was a social protection, 
by making sure they're not ghettoized and left in the gutters. They would live with the people who are taking care of them, basically. And number two, if they're free, then they're still under the patronage of the family that frees them. So no one can touch them. Uh, right. So when you belong legally to somebody, you are protected from violence, from lynching. You're not in shackles. You're not exploited. Now, again, I'm saying it is allowed. And the ideal was to free slaves so that it becomes full, a part of your ibadah, a part of your, you know, you're your pleasing Allah by freeing these people. So the institution of slavery was something that is, you know, not at all the same picture that you'll find in history books here. You understand what I'm saying? We have scholars who are slaves. Ibn Omar's student, Nafi, is a slave. Who is Nafi? He's the teacher of Imam Malik. He's a slave. Now, how can you say, when Ibn Omar said, I'm going to free you, he said, no. Nafi said, Ibn Omar, the Sahabi, as you know, he said, don't free me. If you free me, then I won't have access to you exclusively. <laughs> I won't be able to learn. Yeah. So slaves are not to be exploited. They're not downtrodden. They're part of the society. They're part of civilization. They can earn their own freedom. They have access to certain forms of food and clothing and living that otherwise, if they were let free, they'll be ghettoized. Right? They'll be exploited. Yeah, there was xenophobia would creep in. And they'll be ostracized, they'll be isolated. Okay. So that was a means of protecting uh, foreigners, if you want, prisoners of war. So they have a decent standard of living. Yeah. And it worked for many, many centuries. Now, as with every system, people will abuse the system. Right? Now, you can't blame the system for that. Is there not abuse of the system here in this country? Left, right, and center. <laughs> matter who it is, everybody abuses the system. Right? You can get away with murder if you have the right counsel. That's abusing the system. What do you say to that? So what I'm saying is that uh, without even trying to justify why Islam says slavery is allowed, the fuqah says, they say is mubah, is allowed. The idea that we are there to lynch people, and to rob them of their dignity, that is not in our system. It's not in our fiqh. As well. But as I said, people will abuse the system. So there are those who abuse the system of slavery, and they went into the slave trade, which created the passage for slaves coming to the USA. Now, no doubt, those people who sold them were Muslim. But that's not because the system encouraged it. Right? That's not part of who we are, what we are. So you have to be kind of a bit more sensible when you talk about slavery in Islam and make sure that you understand, as I said, we have so many grandmasters of fiqh and tafsir who are slaves. 
And we learned from them. We didn't care that they were slaves. And the biggest proof is the whole government of the Mamluk. Who are the Mamluks? They're slaves. So Egypt was governed in a time, a time all slaves were governed, they were in government. Which system allows this? Where you're not allowed to even pick a chicken from the farm that you work in if you're starving to death and you're killed because you have a chicken which you're not supposed to have in your hand, all the way to allowing them to govern. Right? For decades. So this is how we must kind of not apologize for music. Look, what we did for those people who were prisoners of war was to give them a sense of dignity, a sense of uh, belonging to a civilization. And eventually most of them who were free became Muslim. But Muslims in general, free slaves. It was nothing there. One of the greatest stories of Ibn Battuta, you know Ibn Battuta, the great Muslim explorer, went all the way from North Africa to China, India, and back. And, you know, he mentions a story in Damascus that uh, he was going through the alleyways of Damascus and he saw somebody who was a slave, dressed like a slave, running, running very quickly with a broken bow in his hand. So Ibn Battuta said, I'm going to follow him. He followed him. You're an explorer, you do things. You, know? <laughs> you don't have a daily plan, the schedule. This, oh, this is happening. Let me see what's happening here. He followed him. So he followed him into a little alleyway in which there were stairs going up to an office. So he followed him to the office. And then the office, this person presents this broken bowl to another person on the other side. And the other person says, wait a few minutes. So a few minutes, maybe half an hour, an hour later, the other person comes out with a new bowl. And then this person goes back. So Ibn Battuta stops and says, what is this? <laughs> what have you done? He said, I'm a slave and I broke this bowl in my master's house. And in Damascus, we have a system that if any slave breaks anything, that item can be replaced for free, without cost, and no injury to the slave. So this is why I came. Now I've got this new bowl, I can go home, and I'll be a happy man sleeping well tonight. <laughs> you understand? So you have to bring out the ihsan that we adopted in the institution, rather than compare it with a totally undignified uncivilized system of uh, human exploitation. We never exploited them, not as part of the fiqh, not as part of the system. Obviously, you'll find other holes in the argument I'm presenting, which is fine. They're justifiable, but we don't have that kind of time because this is a tafsir of this ayah. I'm just saying that uh, we have to acknowledge the dignity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala awarded human beings by, I think the greatest benefit is that they were not ghettoized. They were not downtrodden. They were not exploited. They, they, they were not raped. 
or anything like that. They were not killed randomly and so on. So slavery gave them an added life, basically, which is valuable, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, as I said, uh, anthropologists and whoever the other ologists are in the world, they have problems with it anyway. But they always have problems with anything anyway. They have problems with themselves. Mm -hmm. But we must uh, appreciate that uh, Allah wanted the Ummah to succeed. And as I said, most of the slaves became Muslim, most of them, without fail in some systems. So this is, we had great people who, became, who were either the children of slaves or slaves themselves. The idea that you can learn from your slave, that's unheard of. How can you learn from your slave? Unheard of. There was a governor in the, I think during the, the uh, Banu Umayya period where he actually announced to all the rulers, where are the Arabs gone? All the knowledge now is with the slaves. Actually made an announcement, public announcement. That all the scholars we have today, they're all slaves. Where are the, the, the free people? They're not learning. So we have to understand that Islam wants to make sure human dignity is first of all provided. And number two, there's no exploitation whatsoever. And number three, the impetus was always to free slaves, to get rid of them or make them free. Uh, that's how we were, and that's how we succeeded. They brought skill sets to the table, and every community, now they, eventually they developed what we call the guild system, yeah, where craftsmen, artisans, and other people would become apprentices of the guilds. And then they would make sure that they know how to survive and provide for themselves and become the masters of the guild themselves, which the European community borrowed eventually after the Crusades. And there was no sense of guilds in Europe until after the Crusades. So we, we developed a system where uh, they can actually live in a very decent way, very dignified way. And so on. Anyway, so that's how we see that this ayah is saying that if the war comes to an end, the battle comes to an end, and there is room for peace, then one way to make sure there is no rebellion from the prisoners of war is, you know, tie them legally to people who can take care of them, and provide for them, and so on. Anyway, that's, as I said, an introduction to our theory of slavery. It needs much more work than what I've said, but then you should read those books that are written by Muslims on the institution of slavery. But one thing is clear, is nowhere near the exploitation of the, um, the, the people who were brought in chains on the ships from West Africa to, uh, to here. Nowhere near that. It's a very different universe. Anyway, so here, the next ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu in tansurullah yansurukum wa yithabbit aqdamakum. O you who believe, uh, if you help Allah, Allah will help you, and he will solidify your feet. He will keep you firm, uh, keep you stable, and so on. This ayah, although is revealed in uh, the sense of jihad and khitar and fighting, it applies every aspect of Islam, every 
department of Islam and so on. Helping Allah means helping his cause. Helping Allah means helping his cause. Here the manifestation of his authority on earth. That's the macro. And helping any issue of Islam to become mainstream. That's another level of help. Yeah. Obviously by doing the micro, Salat, Salam, Zakat and Hajj, that's the micro. That's, you help Allah by doing that also. There's the micro level. The macro level is to help the cause of Allah that his authority becomes mainstream. It has much more than a simple religious understanding. So for the lack of better words, uh, although it's deen for us, but some of you may not understand the word deen, so I'm going to use the word religious and political. Mm -hmm. So at the political level, there has to be help, that you must help Allah's laws become mainstream. That's helping Allah. Right? Is at the macro, not the micro. You understand what I'm saying? Helping the cause of Islam. If you do that, Allah will help you. So that's now a promise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making. That if you work towards making sure Allah's authority on earth is manifest through the means that are available to you in any given community, we don't want you to break any laws of any country while you're doing this, <laughs> then that's at your own risk. So we won't allow this, but we will allow in Muslim countries to make sure the authorities establish uh, Allah's authority in the minds and hearts of people and live by Islam. That's one level of help, which is the highest level in a Muslim country. All the Muslim government does this by itself through its own volition without any force. And the lower level is to further the cause of Islam in an un-Muslim country, but there has to be strategic. It can't be haphazard. It cannot be based on slogans and emotion. It has to be organized. It has to be thought through. It has to be planned and strategic where you go through the phases of how to do this at the macro levels. If you do this, Allah will help you achieve that goal. How is Allah going to help you? He's going to help you achieve the goal. Not that he's going to give you more money. That's this guy's not saying that. That can happen too. That he'll give you education on the highest level. That happens anyway. In this country at least. So Allah helping you means Allah will help you succeed in your niyyah and manifest Allah's authority for you and for others. Allah's authority. You should not be intimidated by the word authority. As I said, these words are kind of misleading. We don't like the word politics anyways. We don't like politics either. Neither the word nor the work. So authority, he means that people love Islam, people love Allah, people love the Rasul, and they start following all of these institutions based on their own impulse and with their own volition. Okay. So the idea is to get to the hearts and minds of people, not necessarily the White House. Allah doesn't say, if you take over White House, I'll help you. <laughs> the White House is not supposed to be there in the first place. 
Right, so we're not interested in being in the White House. No Muslim should be interested in being in the White House, period. Okay. What they need to do is make sure that uh, people love Allah, people love the Rasul, people love Islam, people love Muslims, and they do things uh, with this near that you want Allah's name to be higher than anyone else's name, uh, and so on. Again, but without violence, without being deceiving, conniving, without being expedient or opportunistic and all of that. So you have to be very careful how you promote this ayah. Some people promote the ayah at a very micro level, which is not correct. If it is correct, it's not accurate. So you have to be, again, very careful. Allah, he's talking about jihad here. The context of these ayat are all about jihad. So now you can do jihad in your own lands where Muslims, if they're not following the, the deen, Allah's authority, then you do everything to make sure it happens. Yeah. Again, with that vigilantism, yeah, as we also believe in theory, we believe in Muslim political quietism, right? That's in aqidah. So we're not there to seek power, we're there to make sure Allah rules uh, through a system of governance which is kind and accommodating, understanding, and whatever it is. Those rules there in Dar Islam are very different. Now, since we're here, we can only talk about what we need to do here in the context of this surah and the context of this ayah. So our responsibility is slightly lower here in terms of engaging with the uh, political machines and institutions and so on. You may be able to add value here and there in some instances, participation, engagement at a political level maybe is more useful, beneficial if you start from your local village rather than aim for the White House. <laughs> You're much likelier to become a trustee in your own village than become a, a senator in your state. All right, so start there. Go through the mill. Go through the process. This is how it's done here. You can't reach for being a senator, a congressman, or representative, especially when you have absolutely no credibility in the first place. Nobody knows you. Who's going to vote for you? Unless you get lucky, like I'll die here in Glendale Heights. But that's a kind of yeah, anomaly of you know, human history. I think. No credibility, but you're still the mayor. Yeah, it works sometimes. <laughs> That's not the rule, though. The rule is you have to be known. So if you want authority, then you have to go through the mill. You start from the bottom, not from the top. So, so then you can organize a few things for your local village. You can help the library. You can help some other projects. That's how you do uh, this kind of uh, politicking, if you want to call it that. So that's also, if the Nia is right and you know what you're doing, which is the key, you must know what you're doing, then that is helping Allah, but at a very, very kind of low level of help and assistance. The higher level of help and assistance is to make sure people know the deen first. How do we help Allah? So then you have to know Allah. You can't help someone if you don't know what that someone is. So 
that's where we should start. We should start teaching Muslims about Allah, who is Allah. Do you know anything about Allah? He's my creator maker, okay? Anything else? So there you need a little bit of understanding. Based on sound knowledge, which is called theology and theism and aqidah. That's where you start. You have to start in such a way that it is now intelligent and it is based on authentic knowledge. You don't know the system, nor do you know Allah. So neither do you know the content, nor do you understand the context. You know neither. So how are you going to establish Islam? Makes no sense. You need knowledge first. Everything begins and ends with knowledge. Uh, if you have knowledge, you can do things. If you don't have knowledge, you can't do anything. So even though there are some people who are out there in the community helping Muslims in their political causes, they need to know who Allah is. In Tansurullah, if you help Allah, who is Allah? And how does he want you to help him? What are the methods? What's the procedure? And so on. So establishing places of learning will be the first step and the first stop, which takes a generation, 40 years. We haven't done that yet. We've been in existence about 20 years, we're halfway there, <laughs> right? But the community hasn't done this. We haven't produced any scholars who can actually engage at that level of participation and so on. If you do this, he will help you, meaning the success will depend on how you help Allah. The success doesn't necessarily depend only on engagement. The success depends on your methodology, your approach, your strategy, and so on. Or you thabbit akhdamakum, and then he will then consolidate your feet so that you won't move away from Islam. If you try to accommodate other theories, and you try to compromise with your values, Allah will not help you succeed as a Muslim. You may succeed as a Muslim politician, but that's very different from succeeding as what? A Muslim. If you consider the gays, this is the cause for humanity. That's not what's required here, because that's a total bid'ah at the very least. Almost kufr if you actually believe it. So you have to understand the methodology, where you can compromise, where you cannot compromise, the usul, the principles, and so on. That's why Muslims are all shaky. There's no tathbeet of the feet. There's no consolidation of the feet. Muslims are shaky. They're on shaky grounds. They're not sure they're Muslim. More than that, they're not sure they want to be Muslim. Right? And they're not sure of Muslim values. Oh, Muslim values, maybe we should uh, take a broader approach, be more accommodating instead of being uh, super conservative and super orthodox. And, um, that concession now destroys Islam. It doesn't help Islam. It might, it might help you. There's a politician in California. Uh, we just heard about last week. MashaAllah. Um, he was on this uh, bandwagon of accommodating people, and especially the Christians. So he declared himself to be Christian. 
because he wanted he wanted the votes. And you know what happened? Though? <laughs> yeah. He was the last in terms of votes. Nobody voted for him. Not even the Christians, or especially the Christians. You know why? Because uh, people want to see integrity in you. People want to see honesty in you. People don't want you to be opportunistic. So they saw right through him and say, you've only become Christian because you have this intention. You're not truly a Christian. They saw the hypocrisy. Hmm? Right? So you have to be on firm grounds where you are not shaken by context and by people and by the system and popularity. And so it doesn't work. Allah does not help you. Which is what happened. He failed. Miserably, he failed. Very embarrassed, very ashamed. Wasn't embarrassed about leaving Islam. He was embarrassed he lost. <laughs> so and then the, the, these ayat will give you insights in how to behave in your, uh, you know, your campaigns, if you want to call them your campaigns. So you have to have now consistency and you have to be consolidated in your mind. You don't shake and you don't budge from your usul, from your principles, you know. And that is what I think America likes. America likes people who speak their mind. That is why they have freedom of religion here. They speak your mind, freedom of expression here, speak your mind. Practice what you want, practice the way you want to. If you go around, even now, then if you go around the USA, everywhere, and every street corner, there's a church. Amazing. Whether they go there or not, there's a different issue. They used to. They still have that kind of religious value. You know, why would they build churches everywhere? Why do universities say in their preamble that we are representing the Christian faith? Why do they say that in their articles of incorporation? Because they want you to express yourself and be free in terms of who you worship and what you worship, the way you worship. That's one of the greatest nirvah on the planet, I would suggest. Because some of this doesn't happen in Muslim countries. You're not free to do anything you want. You're not even free to express your Islam in our, some of our countries, right? Either by force or by choice, uh, and so on. So here we see that uh, people who have now principles, they are respected. And we should respect that. And that's what the Quran and the Hadith and the Sunnah, they always say this and stand firm. So if you help Allah's cause at the macro level, starting with learning about who Allah is, who the Rasul is, what is Islam, etc., even at a very basic uh, level, and you do things properly, strategically, in an organized way, not as a one-man show, you can't do it individually. You can't be a maverick. You need people with you. Okay. If you're a maverick, you will never succeed. It's not possible. Okay. Because you don't, if you don't have a following and people to support you in your campaign, nothing will happen. Then Allah will make sure that you never leave your deen. Yeah. The key is making sure you don't leave your deen. Make sure you're firm, resolute, and you're strong, and so on. وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا فَتَعْسَلَّهُمْ وَضَلَّ عَمَالُهُ This is a dua. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making this dua. Mm. Yeah, this is khabariya. 
for those of you who know some usul and so on. That those who disbelieve, then let them fall flat on their faces. Allah will mislead all of their actions. Allah will misguide all of their actions and they will fail eventually in whatever scheme and whatever kind of shenanigans they want to implement and force down people's throats and so on. Because that's just the nature of kufr. And there's a cause and effect. The cause of Islam will give you the effect of success. And the cause of kufr will give you the effect of failure. It's a natural phenomenon. This is a natural phenomenon that is expressing that the poison kills you and water gives you life. It's a natural effect of poison and it's a natural effect of water. Kufr by nature destroys and makes you fail. Iman, Islam, gives you success by nature, by definition. Islam by definition proselytizes itself, even if Muslims are quiet. Allah doesn't wait for Muslims to do his work. You understand? So even though we're not doing anything, people are still coming into Islam. How do people come into Islam without Muslims going out there preaching? You understand? Who gives hidayah? Allah. So Islam, by definition, is proselytizing. By definition, it's in its nature to spread, to diffuse. Whereas kufr, in its nature, is misleading, and it brings misery and failure, basically, to human society at large, and so on. So this ayah is a revelation. It reveals the nature of kufr, and it reveals the nature of Islam. And that's how you read this ayah and other ayat. There's always a cause, and there's always an effect. Cause effect. There's a rational explanation to everything, except there's no uh, Islamic rationale. It's not a rationale of science where you can measure this empirically. Maybe you can. If you want to go back into history, you can. But not necessarily. So, this is how we read these ayat. And uh, you want to be part of the group that is helping the cause of law. Not part of the group that is calling for the failure of Allah and His Rasul. That's how you align yourself uh, with the truth and with the haqq and so on. Have they not traveled on earth? and observed how was the fate of those who came before them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demolished them, destroyed them. And uh, for those who disbelieve, uh, there are parables, and there are examples, and so on. Yep. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, look into human history and say, no civilization lives forever. No empire lives forever. No one's authority is forever in human history, observe this, and then observe what was their fate. So you have relics and remnants of their civilization, architecture, and so on. And then you 
excavate and you pour millions and billions of dollars in excavation without actually getting the point. Do you get the point? It is gone. Why are you now kind of celebrating previous civilization? The point is they're dead. That's the point. Now you've made it such a scientific, glorified thing. Excavation. Pouring millions and billions of dollars into something that is not at all beneficial to anybody. What was their fate? The key is to understand the fate of these great nations. Allah says, Dammar Allah Allah destroyed them. It's the most sensible, logical conclusion you can make. You go to the pyramids and it's a spectacular case. What happened? What happened to the people who built them? They're not spectacular anymore. They've decomposed. They're gone. You see how the stupidity of modern day narratives. <laughs> but Muslims are caught up in this. That's the problem. Yeah. So if you travel on earth, you travel for Ibrah, for learning a lesson. You don't travel to glorify the relics and honor them and do this and that. You go to Colosseum in Rome and mesmerize them. It's a dilapidated building for God's sake. Why, why are you taking pictures? Why are you putting that in the home? I went to Rome. But Rome is dead. Right? Why do you concentrate on living and do something for your own communities, for your own societies? And so I mean, this is just a footnote, by the way. <laughs> it's not part of the scene. I'm just saying this as one of my usual observations. So, for those who disbelieve, there are so many other parables, examples that you can bring to the table of discussion and see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to be a very sensible human being and see things for what they are. Yeah. So, this is because Allah. Yeah. Allah is the Mawla of those who believe, and for the non-believers, they have no Mawla. So this now, word Mawla, which obviously comes from Wilaya, it means a patron, it means a guide, it means an assistant, it means a friend, all of that good stuff. So this one says there is no Mawla for the Kafir, and another ayah says that, there's another ayah where Allah is the true Mola of those who will be returned to him. So the one is where you apply this word. If you apply the word in the dunya, in this world, then this ayah is correct. It's true. If you apply the word in the akhirah, then this ayah will be in line with the other ayah where everyone will realize only Allah has absolute authority over people. That's on the Day of Judgment. They'll be returned to Allah, where the true Mawla uh, is the Haq, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On that day will manif manifest to everybody that he is their true Mawla. And they'll realize that then. But in this dunya, they have no Mawla. 
they have no assistance that is divine. Mawlahi means divine assistance. Someone who gives you divine assistance is your Mawlahi. And you have other meanings of the Mawlahi also. So in this world, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not give you divine assistance, even though you may get mundane assistance. So there are two terms that Muslims who are campaigning for this level of engagement must realize. One is mundane and the other is divine. So mundane assistance may come through your strategies and your plannings and whatever the means of force or power and defense you have. And if the other party who's on the haq doesn't have that mundane means, then there's no guarantee that the divine will help. It's done. So why did Muslims lose battles? Why were Muslims colonized if they had divine assistance? This is how you read history. So historically, Muslims may fail and they have failed and they have lost so many things because they did not keep up with the rules of mundane assistance. You understand? Yeah, as the Quran tells us, Surah Anfal, Some of you have read that ayah with me before. That you must prepare yourselves for your own self-defense. If you don't do that, divine assistance is not forthcoming. Except when Allah wants them. Sometimes it comes. Yeah. But Dawud salam's small little army defeated Jalut and Goliath. The small little band of people who were not warriors in Badr defeated the Quraysh. So sometimes it helps. But no, that's not the rule in this dunya. And in this dunya, you have to take all mundane precautions and mundane forms of making sure you know what it is you're doing. And so that's something you have to plan, organize, strategize, and so on. So likewise, here in this country, if you want to engage with Islam, then you must make sure you have the mundane means of doing so. You make dua too. But dua will not be enough in this dunya. It won't be enough. If you don't plan, organize, strategize, if you don't build scholars and scholarships and you don't have an ivory tower and you don't publish and you don't write and don't engage with mainstream narrative, Allah's not going to help you. It won't happen. Period. You need to get, you know, things on the ground right first. It's not a fairy tale. Islam is not a fairy tale. Right? And Muslims now see Islam as a fairy tale. We engage this way and Allah will help. It doesn't happen. Okay? You have to know who you're dealing with, what you're dealing with, how to communicate, how to develop credibility, and how to actually engage in a meaningful conversation which becomes a narrative. For that, you need to know them. You can't just say, I have the haqq, I have the Qur'an. It doesn't work that way. You know, my mentor, mashallah, Dr. Allama Khalid Mahmoud, rahimullah. Mm. He says, in, before every debate he had with any people, he would prepare for days. 
He was a lama, he was one of the greatest scholars of this century at least. But he didn't do it without preparation. No, he... <laughs> Allah Akbar. No one prepares for anything. You know, I know this about Islam. So I'm going to an interview you know, with this journalist. You're not prepared. First, you don't know anything. You shouldn't be there in the first place. You excuse yourself. I'm not the person. And you want to write a book on Sira, and you know nothing about Sira. And you become mainstream, that Muslim conversation. And this guy wrote a book on Sira with about a thousand mistakes. <laughs> One or two fine little good points. So mundane preparation and planning, strategizing is the only way we will succeed. It has to be done on the ground. Duas, dhikr, this, that, they help. They assist. They're a supporting role. The actual meat is in the action. What's the action? You have to prepare. You want to go and deliver a speech to the UN? Make sure you have your ducks in a row. <laughs> right? You have to prepare. There's, there's no other way. You have to be organized. Preparation takes a decade. So if you're not there, don't do it. Because there's much more harm in you doing it without preparation than when you do it with preparation. So you need patience. It won't happen overnight. It doesn't happen that way. When Muslims went to Egypt and Syria and Iraq and Iran, they did not convert overnight. There's another myth. Why? Because the Sahaba knew in the mundane world, it takes time. They didn't force Islam down the throats of the Coptic Christians there. No, the Zoroastrians. It didn't work that way. What did they do? They engaged. They prepared after decades, sometimes centuries, they eventually became Muslim. You need patience. The Quran says, uh, Allah will rule. He doesn't rule that way. <laughs> do you have the stamina to do this work? Here you want results overnight. You want miracles. Right? You go to the maktab. There's, mashallah, a very nice brother. He's a chaplain on the East Coast, I'll mention the university. Chaplain on the East Coast, and he says that, you know, I'm Ivy League, I'm a chaplain here, and the parents bring me their 18-year-olds, and they say, we never taught them Islam in our house, now it's your job. How's Allah gonna help you? Right? And despicable behavior. You, you're actually saying, I didn't do my job. <laughs> right? And how is your business? How's your profession? I studied 20 years. And this child, I neglected him. But I want you now to do some miracles, perform miracles, make him into a Muslim. That ain't happening. So, in Tansurullah, there are two levels. One is divine assistance where divine assistance comes sometimes as a mojiza, sometimes as a karama, but those are anomalies. That's not the norm. Mundane assistance is in what Muslims do. And what Muslims do is dependent on how they think. If you can't think for a hundred years, don't do anything. 
you must strategize and plan for 100 years. That's the rule of every civilization. If you can't do that, you're not going to govern diddly squat. Right? Nobody will listen to you, which they don't anyway. But if you want something to happen, you have to sow the seeds now so that the next generation will carry on that tradition. You can't expect the results in your lifetime either. That is being short-sighted. You understand? Yeah. So miracles are not going to happen. They, they don't happen, period, basically. You have to do the hard work. Man has only what he strives for. If you work hard, something will happen eventually. The consequence is not in your hands. The planning, organizing, that's in your hands. So we, we need to be very diligent and very uh, patient in the way we do things. Yeah, so if you want Allah to help, then you have to help him by starting the procedure. It's a procedure, it's a process, it's not an event. Badr was not an event. It was at the end of a process called Hijrah. That Hijrah took 13 years, 14 years before the event of Badr happened. It didn't happen overnight. Allah's assistance doesn't come that way. He doesn't work that way. This is the mundane world. Follow the mundane world and you'll be successful. If you don't follow the mundane world, then there's no guarantee that you'll be successful. Anyway, along with that taqwa, piety, Quran, tilawa, good work, helping people, all of that now comes with the package. It's the whole thing. It's not just one isolated, uh, partialized. We are guilty of uh, uh, partializing Islam. We don't see Islam as a whole. It's, part of it. it's like taking the human body and saying, I'm only going to concentrate on the ear. I'm only going to concentrate on the foot, which is what medicine has become now. Everybody's partializing their specializations and so on. With due credit to those who are specialists in their field. We enjoy them, we need them. I mean, the, 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 the approach must be as a whole, as an organic whole. Islam needs to be practiced as an organic whole, complete, not as something that's partial, but that requires a number. One group of people can't do everything, which is the nether myth in the USA. Everybody assumes they can do everything. You can't do everything. Dark Awesome can't do everything. There are many things even in education we can't do. We don't do children education. We don't allow it, actually. <laughs> we won't allow anybody who is not 18 years old to enter the building. Never mind, teach them. So we can't do everything. You need everybody in the Ummah to participate in this whole. But the problem is Muslims don't see anything except their partial businesses. They're very fragmented in their methodology, in their strategy, in their understanding. So this surah will show you how to be a whole ummah. Comprehensive understanding, strategizing, as you will see, hopefully, in the next few ayat. Anyway, jazakumullah khair. We do have one more tafsir for this year, next week, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Subhanallah, alhamdulillah. So you'll have salat here in five minutes.